have adopted four children. Um, we've adopted two children as teenagers. So I've, we've adopted two children who came to us at the age of 17, and then two children as infants. So my youngest children, the two youngest children who are at home now, they are, um, their memories of adoption are older children. So they're always on the lookout for their next big brother and big sister, <laughs> right? Um, and I was sharing with, with someone last night at, at dinner, you know, it's a funny thing because um, I'm not able to bear children, so all of our children have come through us, to us through adoption, and I praise God for that. But um, it was not until I met my teenagers that whatever kind of mommy juices I have that go started going. Now, I love babies. I love the, the nurturing. I, I, I value the need for attachment because I've seen the effect of lack of attachment. But there is something about teenagers in trouble that bring out my sense of motherhood. And you know what? I would never have known that if I was not infertile. You see, I never would have found my stride as a parent. And so for me, the paradigm of adoption is not just how the Lord built my family, but it is a key doctrine in Christian living. So the story I was starting to tell you is that um, we have a large dining room table in our house. It seats 22 people, and it's always open in the open position. Um, and it's always open in the open position because we regularly, well, we have dinner at the same time every night, and we really don't know who will be there. Um, be, and, you know, I have found that that's a very helpful way. You know, one of the hardest things about hospitality is kind of gearing up to do it. But it's a light, little bit like everything else. If it's just the norm, you know what? There's really no stress involved. But so my 11-year-old startled because it was just startling and a little bit sad to him that it indeed was just us. So Kent and I are the only believers in our collective families of origin. And for us, the covenant of marriage was a high, and I'm going to say for myself, a little bit of a scary calling. All right? But here's what it is not. It is not a trophy. Okay? It is not a trophy. It is a responsibility. And we believe that if God gave us the gift of a covenant family, our responsibility is to share it. In general, I think that is a general principle of gift and gifting in the Bible. If God has given you a gift, your job is to draw that gift out in others. Your job is not necessarily to be in the spotlight performing. You are to be encouraging and nurturing and drawing. Gifts are not to be hoarded. Gifts are not to be set apart by a boundary. Gifts are, to, gifts are bridges that we use to call out that gift in others. So, all to say that we gather nightly around this big table for dinner and family devotions, and we rarely know who will join us, but God always sends people. Over the years, Kent and I have come to learn that Christian community is built on two biblical principles, the paradigm of adoption and the fourth commandment, the commandment to keep the Lord's day holy. 
And I have to wonder if part of why our churches truly are lonely places, and they are lonely places. They're lonely places for people with families. They're lonely places for people without families. They're often places where community is not organic and spontaneous, but rather completely programmatic. And it's alienating, and it's confusing to everybody. But I do wonder if sometimes our churches are lonely places for everyone because we have tried to pitch Christian community on the wrong support. Sometimes, at least in many of our conservative churches, community seems to be an extension of family. And the call for marriage and procreation that is found in Genesis 128, I don't think is a paradigm of community. Here's what Genesis 128 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, as I understand this verse, it has a lot to do with stewardship of the earth. But to find God's paradigm for community, I believe we must turn to the doctrine of adoption in the fourth commandment. So let's look first at adoption. Adoption is at the root of the gospel message. By God the Father's adoption, I became his child, and I left the home and the bed I made with Satan and his minions. Adoption establishes my identity in Christ, my inheritance through Christ, and my mission because of Christ. Adoption is always both and. It is about both orphaned children and about lost image bearers. Adoption is simply not an optional concept for the Christian, and it is indeed a gospel priority. And the gospel is never a second choice. Both and. Just like the adoption of orphan children into any family, um, it's never done to compensate for something. You may think it is. I mean, you know, you may go in thinking, well, I can't bear children, therefore I should adopt. But God will not let you stay there. Adoption is simply not some kind of compensatory, com compensatory thing to respond to infertility. It's too big. It's way too important. Likewise, God the Father's adoption of you and me was not done to compensate for something lacking. Adoption creates belonging that weaves lives together beyond gene pools and genetic codes. And adoption creates an identity crisis, and it is supposed to. Holly yesterday read from Russell Moore's matchless book, Adopted for Life, and so I will do the same thing here. He says, none of us likes to think we were adopted. We like to assume that we're natural-born children with a right to all of this grace and to all of this glory. But we who are in Christ are adopted. We have a new heritage. And out of our adoption by God springs a new sense of community and homestead. The newness of life should have a palpable kick. It should change the way our homes look and act. My children and I just finished reading The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. How many of you have read that book? All right, it's, a, um, it's powerful. The book begins, 
interestingly enough, with just simple biblical practices, if you recall this, simple practices that Caspar Ten Boom, the family patriarch, employed. Every morning he read from one chapter of the Old Testament, and every evening he read from one chapter of the New Testament, and he did this every day. And almost every day they had people at their table, believers and unbelievers, Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor. And they ate, read, and built community together. And when unmitigated evil unleashed itself in Holland, they already had a community in place carved out of neighbors, scripture, and doing life together. You see, they didn't know what for, but they were ready. Nobody could have imagined what for. First in their home and later in Hitler's concentration camps, Corey and her sister Betsy shared the gospel, their food, their lives, and their sufferings. They simply did not have a plan, but they had a practice. The same is true for us. We don't have to have a plan, but we could have a practice. <laughs> they had a practice of communal living, and God used them to do great things. And so now what about us? What stands between us and doing life together with others? What stands between us and creating Christian community? So here are 10 points that I found on David Murray's blog that we can just begin with. He says, we are too busy, too selfish, too functional, too proud, too fearful, too safe, too superficial, too brainwashed, too competitive, and too unchristlike. I agree. Uh, I agree. And sometimes we are all those things under the guise of trying to be good parents. How do we create community together then in this age of anxiety, phobia, fear, and stranger danger? We're called to break bread, but as Chilia noted this morning, which bread do we break? You know, gluten-free, whole wheat, organic. <laughs> yeah. You know fellowship meals. I mean, it's not just my church. There, there have been all-out wars based on food. How do we invite people we do not yet know into our lives? Is it safe? Who are our neighbors? Would we actually even know them without those window decals? The barriers to seeing our homes as a Christian habitus, community made to share, welcome, and draw others in. The barriers to this habitus mount high. I hear excuses every day, sometimes from my own heart. I homeschool, I have small children whose ability to be influenced by sin rules my fretting heart. My neighbors are too busy and they're never home. Plus I've lived there 10 years and I still don't know their name and it's a little awkward now to go across the street, knock on the door and say, uh, Jane, is that it? Um, I'm an introvert, I'm busy, too busy serving the church. The list can just go on. And so maybe we need to start not with how, but with why. Why create community? Who needs it? As my son startled to a sense of aloneness, one of the things I noticed is that it seemed unnatural to him, and maybe a little bit unsafe and unfun as well. And I wonder, shouldn't that be our response? 
Shouldn't that be our response? So what does a Christian home committed to community provide to our world, and how does it nurture people, support people in their needs, and spread the gospel in deeds as well as words? Well, just a couple of things to think in mind. Number one, community creates places of compassion, and compassion means with suffering. Community creates a way to practice accompanied suffering, standing with and for each other. And if you're doing community regularly, and I think that's a, that's a kind of bottom line. This isn't a by invitation only. This is a, you know, God's people know where to gather thing. If you're doing it regularly, it's a fairly fluid thing to stand with the disempowered. Number two, community creates opportunities to love the unlovely because you, Christian, have much to learn from them. And you, perhaps, need them more than they need you. Number three, community provides a first chair seat to abide in the family of God's orchestra. Number four, community creates an invitation to put stock in the resonating effect of small things. And number five, community sets a boundary created by God to help you not sin. So it all begins with loving the stranger. The word hospitality transliterates from the Greek word philoxenia, or love for the stranger. Odd idea in this, the era of stranger danger. We see this in scripture early on when Lot rushes to meet the strangers at the gate in Sodom to spare them from harm. Lot felt a moral responsibility to shelter them. He recognized them and he acted on his recognition in a direct and a forthright way. Do we? Do we recognize ourselves as having been strangers once? The creation of community through hospitality begins when we truly do remember that we were strangers to God once. We see this in Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Matthew 25. We are cut to the heart when we hear Jesus say this, because this line simply calls us from the pages of the book. We clutch hard, and we know we haven't done this, not well. And so the, the next line in scripture is, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? That's a good question. That's a good question. It hits really hard the way that that question is framed, that we have not done those things yet. It, it, we try to dodge it because we cannot imagine that we're really expected to do all this. I mean, not now. You're busy. You're homeschooling. You're, you've got small children. You're not feeling well. How can God expect us to really do this? But then God speaks, and it's almost too much to hear. To the extent that you did this to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it unto me. And I think we read this, and I do, and I see, wow, I've, I've failed again. 
We who claim to know Jesus, we who remember our profession of faith and our life commitment, we know that we have failed when we read that line. We know how flimsy our hold is on love and life and relationships. Those lines really shake me down like a mother kitten holding its young with a fierce grip to the neck. And these other words of Jesus, they're suddenly not for other people, but they're directed at me. So in order to create community, we, we must do both as we're applying this verse. We, mu we must both see the stranger in Jesus and Jesus in the stranger. And we need to remember our own orphanhood and our own alienation. Whenever we think we can speak on behalf of Jesus, that is, whenever we say, I know God's will for my life, and it can't be that, <laughs> <laughs> these kinds of things happen to me. Scripture just cuts you to the core. Uh, the Lord takes me with a strong hand and through my circumstances destroys my convictions that I know how to serve God best. God's hand on my ignorance focuses my mind's eye on this. I am ignorant of the Lord even in the very way that I am determined to serve him. So to begin then, we must remember that community begins when we remember that perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. We sometimes fear that our neighbors will bring problems and issues into our homes that we are simply not ready to discuss in front of our children. And we pit the command to nurture and teach our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord against the command to love our neighbor. We need to stop and really think about this. On the one hand, of course, we must protect our children from harm. And on the other hand, we must not presume that sheltering them is the way we do that. Perhaps our children need to know when they're thinking back on their life and they're a little older and when they confront doubts and fears and sexual temptations and moral and faith crises, perhaps we're investing in them when they remember that we were not shocked, horrified, or offended by people whose lives were a mess just like ours once were. Perhaps, just perhaps, our children will remember that we embraced our neighbors and we loved them and we prayed for them. We were not jostled or unsettled to share block parties and barbecues and meals and invitations to church with troubled people. And perhaps our love of these image bearers, all of them, even the difficult ones, will be a pledge to our children that the complex mosaic of their private lives and fears are truly safe with us. So community also begins when we remember that God uses us as living epistles and the openness or inaccessibility of our homes and hearts truly stands between life and death, victory and defeat, grace or shame for most people. Perhaps God intends your house as a means of escape for someone, as we discussed this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God always provides a way of escape. Perhaps that is you. The Lord's Day is a terrible day of temptation for new believers. Without the moorings of the fourth commandment, it is a day awash in the twin churnings of the world, personal achievements and material acquisition. Football, overtime, kids' soccer, shopping, 
But if you believe that the fourth commandment is binding, you see that your job is not just to keep the Lord's Day holy for you, just like in the morning or whenever you're doing your devotions. It's really not for you. Imagine that. You might have the weight of the world on you as you're reading and praying. You may be the only person in a community of 25 who even know how to open the Bible. And the same may be true for your home. So it, the Lord's Day, keeping it holy, isn't really about what you do necessarily in a private and personal way, but rather what do you do to encourage the keeping of the Sabbath in a global and communal way? You are to set a standard you who are in the Lord, and help others maintain the joy of that day. Truly, my favorite day of the week is the Lord's Day. And um, whenever I travel and speak, I uh, have, you know, I, I just, I'm never away on the Lord's Day. It's part of the rule that I'll get back. Sometimes it's very late. Lord willing, I'll get back tonight, late Saturday night. But I never accept an invitation to speak on the Lord's Day because I need that day for me. See, I'm no good to you on that day. I'm zero good to you on that day. That is a day that I need to be in my church community. I want to share that joy, the, day of the, the joy of that day with others. So Kent and I love to open our home after worship and mercy ministry. We have a fairly long day. We do mercy ministry after our Sabbath school hour. And we open our home after worship and mercy to truly anyone who can come. Um, one of the things that we try to do is make room for the people who are easy to neglect and forget. And, and I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if, if you're not sure who is lonely in your church, pray that God would, would just reveal that to you. Because loneliness within a community is a pervasive problem in churches. And if, if you're missing it, it's, it's because the, the radio isn't quite tuned. So we need to tune that in. You need to open your home in whatever state it is in. I'll tell you that mine is a disaster, especially when I've been gone all weekend. The, la the last time, last month when I was gone, Lord's Day morning, our cat jumped on the table. Okay, now this is terrible when the cat on the table rebukes you. And he got stuck <laughs> because of the syrup that had been just sort of accumulating there. All right? <laughs> so... Uh, really, when the cat on the table rebukes you, you're, you're just, you're, you know it's bad. So, it, so I'm sure it'll be bad tomorrow, but it, it'll be what it'll be. Um, open your home in whatever state it is in, and it will become a day of holy joy. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or the cat stuck to the table <laughs> or stuck in the mac and cheese or whatever it is. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup. If you run out of food, we've done this before, this is fun, make pancakes and put the children in charge of the meal. <laughs> See how much fun you can have with that. And know that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he instead is walking with you and your kids and dogs. And as you share community, one model of grace this provides. Know that someone is spared the fear and self-hatred of depression because instead she's making pancakes with your kids, experiencing the deafening shrieks of laughter that stand as evidence that, at least on this Lord's Day, she is not alone, but instead is safe in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. 
know that someone is drawn into Christ's love because the Bible reading and the worship music and the psalm singing that comes at the close of the meal includes everyone, and that it reminds us that truly no one is scapegoated in this Christ-loving community. The doors are open. Sin is pretty straight up. We all have it. It only proves God was right all along. Hard to get worked up, really. Community begins, then, with an intentional plan. That seems to be a word that's been coming up in this conference, intentional. An intentional plan to open the doors of this covenant community. And then, if just opening the doors isn't enough, you got to go out and get some people. You need to go out, and you might even need to toss over your shoulder and carry home someone who cannot get there herself. I'm not suggesting kidnapping. Winsome persuasiveness. But you know, one of the ways we can do this, and this is just something to consider, but have you ever considered becoming a licensed foster parent? And let me tell you here, and I know this is controversial. I bet you can't imagine that I often say controversial things. (laughs) But I am including single Christians when I ask if you have ever considered being a licensed foster parent. Because if you are a single Christian, you are a covenant family. Okay, You are a covenant family with all of the rights and responsibilities of a a church member covenant family, which includes, I I would hope, other foster parents in the church who could help you with after-school pickup and family devotions and things. But have you considered being a licensed foster parent? Or... um, if not, do you know foster parents or adoptive parents who, who are praying for and opening their homes to children in all walks of life? Uh, do you know people who have adopted children or have foster children in their home who daily bear the scars of neglect and abuse? And even if this is not the right season for you to adopt or foster children in need, you know someone who stands between worldly orphanhood and Christ-like belonging. And you know the parents who stand behind them. Help them. Help them. Move in close. God wants the church to be the front line of hope and family for orphans and widows and prisoners. You can be Aaron holding up Moses' arms when you lock arms with someone in your world in the adoption and foster care community. You know what else happens when you're a licensed foster parent? This is sort of an interesting thing. You're not actually required you know, they, you have a placement, and you think about it, and you assess your family's, you know, world at the time compared to what, what children need. But one of the things you all of a sudden have is access to a completely hidden pool of people to pray for. And, and you know, we've done that, where you just have files, and you just spread them out on the floor, and you get your community over to pray. You're just praying over <coughs> these files. You know, in our privilege, our privilege really makes us, renders us, Um, ignorance, and sometimes dangerous. But when you have access to know how to pray for people, you know, that's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. That's actually a very big thing. So community also begins when you have an intentional plan to step into someone's world of grief and stay there. Do you know someone who has buried a child or more? someone who has miscarried. 
someone whose same-sex desires nag at her year after year, someone whose singleness she wears as sackcloth. You know, move in close, break into the isolation. Compassion means with suffering. And so it's a question we have to ask each other. Are we good company for the suffering? No, why not? Why not? We have so many barriers to community. One is the fear that we won't measure up. Um, another is anxiety about what might happen. Um, sometimes we feel panic that we're going to get in over our heads with people and they will literally suck us dry and dead in the process. We know that God commands us to practice hospitality for his glory and for the protection of the unloved. But in what way is the creation of Christian community intended for the good of the giver? You see, God doesn't give you a command that is just a one-way blessing. Right? All blessings of God have a double directional arrow to them. So how is sacrificing yourself to create community, how is that? done, how is that commanded for your blessing? Doing life together, practicing hospitality, and creating community based in real diversity helps us do something that at least is very hard for me. Psalm 141 talks about it, keeping a guard over your mouth. <laughs> Holly talked about working out of fullness, meeting people out of the fullness of God's word in your heart, not emptiness. And you know, when, you, when your house is open, you're on guard a little bit. And it's good for everybody, all right? It also tends to render Ephesians 4.26 a verse of immediate urgency. Sometimes we see that verse as a, hey, when I get around to it, that's going to be really sanctifying for me. <laughs> Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know, all of a sudden, when you've got 14 new people in your house, there are a lot of needs of the moment going on. We live with a draught of grace. We truly do, one to another. But as people gather around your table, you heal the parched land of their hearts, as God allows you to speak words of grace, informally, as it simply spills into the needs of the moment, with humility, gentleness, and patience. When silence turns to prayer without announcing it or calling for prayer requests. When Bibles flip open naturally as conversations escalate. And because you have chosen company with the outcast and the hurting, you are not going to let your guard down. And this, by God's grace, will not be a day that turns into a night of torment as you replay what you said and wish that you could edit it or erase it. Your children are learning how to share the gospel with fluency and how to love it before a watching world. And you see your role in God's community of helpers and healers. You know, the other thing you see is that a good community, a real Christian community, relies on you sharing both your resources and your needs. And we need to think about that. We're not trying to establish a sort of hierarchy or a power position of the giver. Um, I would be lost, quite frankly, if we didn't have a community, a Christian community, right now, helping take care of my children. <coughs> I, I mean, I, you know, really, I couldn't be here. I mean, I couldn't be here safely if it was just me, 
if all the responsibility of functioning in this challenging world relied upon me, there's no way. So you share your resources and, you ne and your needs. You see your mission field, and it actually expands past your mailbox. That's really encouraging, especially to a mom. It helps. You have sharpened your prayers, which are filled with names and thanksgiving and praise. You count it all joy to share what you have, knowing that God will magnify your efforts. And you partner with others, both weak and strong, to make Christian homes places where Jesus could truly rest his head. So I'm going to stop there and open this now to your questions. And, your, and we, could, we could ask about hospitality, about um, creating community, or about anything that I've talked with you really this, this weekend. Thank you. So questions, yes. Okay, the question was, when I came to Christ, or when I first started to really feel the Lord pulling in my life, what, um, what happened to my community, my partner, my extended lesbian community? Did I have a, a powerful witness with them? All right. Well, let me say the answer, first of all, to the last question is no. Um, and I think we need to really understand that. When I came to Christ, I became a traitor. Okay, a powerful traitor. When I came to Christ, I became somebody who's, it was like I had a sign on me that said, you know, your secrets are not safe with me. Right? That's a very serious betrayal. And, and I think that is a, it's a, um, it's a paradigm that when one, um, when one person comes to Christ from a community that, that, that hates Christ, puts a great deal of pressure on everybody else in that community. It squeezes them and presses them and, and harasses them. Um, so no, I mean, I became, I, 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 you know, I, I joined the enemy camp when, when I became a Christian. Um, now, I'll tell you, my partner at the time is a Cornell-trained psychologist, so <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I'm a case study. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, we couldn't help but to let our you know research and our home life sort of inter interlap. So um, you know, no, I mean, I just it's a a, a Christian faith is a um, it has an element of supernatural grace. In fact, that's what it's what's at the core of it, and that simply cannot be quantified or. Um, packaged for someone else. Um, now, now, interestingly, you know, because it's not like my world stopped. You know, I was never fired from my job. I didn't, you know, I was still doing what I was doing. And um, the Lord did bring ministry, but not of the kind that I had expected. He never does. No, that's true. So I, um, uh, 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 you know, shortly after my conversion, one of my international graduate students had uh, tried to commit suicide because she was an international student, I was her primary contact at the hospital. It was very clear to me that, that uh, you know, we needed, we needed the lesbian community there, and I also needed the Christian community there. And so there was a lot of, um, you know, fruitful exchange, you know, because in a hospital, you know, there's a, 
do you want a cup of coffee? Hey, we're praying, you want to join us? Um, so, um, you know, those are the things. That was very uncomfortable, I'm just going to tell you that it was not what I had. Um, but when she was released from the hospital, there was the big question of, well, well now where? And so this student was able to recover at uh, Ken Smith's house, at the pastor's house. And at that point, both communities agreed that was the ideal place. You know, so, so definitely with, um, you know, with suffering always comes the opportunity to do mercy work. And you know the thing about mercy work? Nobody is going to argue with mercy work. And you know, we've, we've talked before about how do we talk to people who don't agree with us? How do we talk to our unsaved loved ones? You know, one of the ways we do it is to always make sure that our intimacy and our words, um, you know, the, the, um, the integrity of our relationship and the strength of our words share the same kind of pitch. Do you know what I'm saying by that? That there's a balance. There's a balance between the intensity of our language and the intensity of our friendship. And a great way to, dis to develop that is to do mercy work together. Um, so we definitely saw some of that. Other questions? Yes. Okay, right. The question is, I think there were two questions there, so I'm going to separate it. One was, um, um, temptation is not a sin. Right. So it just isn't. Temptation is not a sin. We talked about but what you do with it, maybe. Temptation is not a sin. Um, so how do you deal with, with believers in your church who, um, who struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction and are truly filled with the Holy Spirit, are working for the Lord, are doing great things for the Lord. How do you deal with those people? Well, I think those are heroes of the faith, and you say, thank you very much, because in your singleness and in your sharpened eye to daily struggle, you have a lot to teach us. So, uh, you know, that's, 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 that's my take on it. Now, the question, the other question, though, is how, what do you do when you have um, believers in your church who... Um, in some ways, use the word of God to excuse sin. Well, that's just not a problem for people with same-sex attraction. That, you know, that, that is what the whole pool of sexuality does to people. I mean, it is, it is across the gamut. So, so one thing you might want to do is just have a sort of a, you know, again, I, I, I love what Sam Albury says, that, you know, it's not just that we're all sinners, we're all sexual sinners. So it's helpful to, again, be intentional and think about how the... How the um, how a desire, you know, how the, the power of sexual desire does have a way to, you know, it captures us, and it captures all of us. Um, so as I said today, this morning, I think it's really helpful to just arm yourself with good tools of discernment. Um, and I like John Owen, and Pastor Bob likes um, Chris Lungard's um, book on John Owen. Uh, so I think, you know, one of the problems is you can't, um, you know, what is that expression? If you don't have a plan, you plan to fail or something. Um, if you don't, if you're not sharpening your mind and applying yourself to the means of grace and really, 
if you don't have a category for some of these problems, it's hard to know what to do with them. You know, having a, a verbal category or a vocabulary word, it's a little bit like having a file folder. You know, I'm sort of sequential, so I like file folders. I lose them half the time, but I love them. You know, I put it in the file folder. Um, and in some ways, just you know, being um, uh, tutoring yourself in God's vocabulary and using the Bible as God's dictionary is a way of, um, of helping in that way. Um, so, you know, you do what you would do with any other sin in your life. You uh, try to find the log in your eye first, and you are prayerful. And, you know, you can't, you can't really speak a word in season to somebody who's not your friend. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, you know, and, and you shouldn't. I mean, let me just suggest that. Um, so, uh, you know, you need to bring people in close. You need, and that's why uh, creating community is so important. You know, I, I'm a busy person, you're a busy person, and I'm an introvert. So I'm going to tell you, I hate talking on the phone. You know, I have a friend back there. We have to schedule phone time because, I don't know, the phone rings and I panic. Oh, I have to talk. But if I know beforehand, you know, I'm okay. Um, so what's so nice about just having a regular ethic of community right in your own home is you don't have to fret about that. And you do develop friendships, and you do develop friendships that are close enough that you can actually say words in season. And the other thing is you need to be prepared for people to speak words in season to you. And you know what? That has blessed me and helped me more than anything I can imagine. I will tell you that this public ministry it is in the category of the no fun for Rosaria. Because when this public ministry started, it was like I had a big sign on my head that said, Satan, you know, here I am. And I am daily blessed by the people in my community who hold my feet, even my you know, one with the broken bone here, to the, to the fire on some things. So it goes both ways. I think I'm told I have one more question left. Is that right? Okay. Oh, I don't know. Some, some pastor pick. We have too many hands up. Okay. But right here? Okay. Hi. Hi. Uh, earlier you spoke that uh, God speaks to us through the Bible. He does not speak to us directly. Now, were you talking about audibly, i.e. Moses on the burning book? Or were you talking spirit to spirit? Explain that a little well, bit. Well, yes. I, that's a, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, I recently had someone from a particular kind of therapy program that I don't agree with come up to me after a lecture and tell me how offended they were from, from that statement. And I thought, well, in some ways, it's good to just know where your lines are. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with that. But what I mean by that is that um, you need to be richly in the word, not only because of what it says, but because of how it says it. How it says it not only because what it says in a discrete or sequential way, but because you know we are daily in the word, not because we forgot what it said yesterday, but because it is our supernatural love letter from a holy God. We are covered by it. As Holly said, we have the facts of our life. We're not minimizing them, but we need to cover them in the providence and sovereignty of God. And there is something about the language a language is like a voice, and you know that. I sing to my children every night, and it's just not the same when somebody else does it. And that's the language of the Bible. Now, what you do not want to do is ever get to the point where you say, well, the Bible says this, 
But the Holy Spirit says this, and I know because the Holy Spirit talked to me, and what I want you to know is Satan knows your name and how to talk to you too. And what Satan will use is your deepest desires, your most primal sense of yourself. And so if you, sister, cannot check what the Holy Spirit has said to you in the Word of God, it was not God talking. Because the Word of God is timeless. It is timeless, and you can depend upon it. Does that make sense? Actually, I believe itself is Satan or it's God. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.